Welcome to the Sympathetic People podcast, the podcast by sympathetic people for sympathetic people. Right, so today we're going to be talking about uh, the effect of domestication on dog brains, dog intelligence and cognition and that sort of stuff, and we may talk about other things depending on where the conversation takes us. Uh, for the last seven years, I've been living with, in addition to my wife, I've been living with an Australian Shepherd dog. Uh, for those who don't know, they're very similar to Border Collies. They're often listed in the you know top few most intelligent dog breeds, and I've always found it to be really interesting because of my interest in, in cognition and philosophy of mind, to have a non-human consciousness in the house and to observe her very closely. Um, we, we're we going to talk, as I said, about this, this uh, a particular study uh, about comparing wolves and, and dogs, and Yoha is the one who's brought this to the, uh, to the table, so do you want to give a bit of an introduction or just like a really brief summary of, of this study or what they were trying to investigate and then we'll just go from there? All right. All right. The study is called The Effects on Domestication and Ontogeny on Cognition in Dogs and Wolves. So what it does is that it compares uh, wolves and dogs and how they are uh, like able to solve uh, food-related puzzles. So basically, there is a box, and the box contains food, and there is a box that is empty, and a experimenter is either giving them cues or like like hiding and looking whether they can solve, you know, which box has the food in it, mm-hmm. in a nutshell. And what they found is that um, a cues, uh, like you know, gaze cues, or actually the experimenter was actually pointing to the box. Like cues worked uh, equally fine with both wolves and dogs. Uh, however, the uh, the difference what they found is that dogs were not that good as wolves at actually solving that without cues, mm-hmm. uh, and they. Like basically, they come to the conclusion that uh, domestication impaired uh, the puzzle-solving ability, like you know, co- causal relation, uh, causal um, cognition in dogs and wolves. Kind of uh, can understand that. Hey, you know, if this is uh, the uh, like, they can follow the the yeah. Uh, so they're better, <laughs> they're better at um, independent problem solving than dogs. And maybe yeah. surprisingly, they seem to be just as good at dogs in these experimental conditions uh, at following cues. So at, you know, as you said, following a, a point or a, or a gaze or, or whatever. I mean, I think it's really important to point out right at the beginning that these are not wild wolves. Uh, they are wolves that have been raised in captivity and that are extensively socialized with humans. So obviously a wild wolf is not going to interact 
you know, a normal wild wolf is not going to interact with a human or be looking at its gaze or, or any of those things. We assume it's going to be, you know, generally speaking, it's going to be running in the opposite direction away from humans. So I think that's key that these... And also, I think you didn't mention that they had three treatment groups. They had wolves, these socialised wolves, captive-raised wolves that have had contact with humans for their entire lives. They had dogs, which were raised in those same conditions as the wolves, so they call them pack dogs. Again, they have been raised uh, at the same um, facility as the wolves, but in the same conditions as the wolves. So they are they have contact with humans, but they mostly are doing their own thing, and they have you know pack um, with a with a standard dominance hierarchy and things like that. And then the third treatment group is actual pet dogs, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so what was like weird for me is that I would I was expecting, <laughs> I guess as like you know people would expect in general that. Uh, dogs were uh, should be able to you know outsmart wolves, especially if a human is pointing them. You mm. know, like the food is right there. So uh, because I would I would expect that dogs were selected for that, mm-hmm. and you know that we are so fond of how smart the dogs are, and you know they can know as you just said me an article how they can know you know one thousand words and so on. And basically, like <laughs> the whole idea that? that the dog is you know as close to intelligence as a human and basically only maybe you know large apes can mm. uh you know challenge it in mm. that way but surprisingly that doesn't seem to be the case at least in you know uh, following the the you know connections like you know forming the connections that okay if you're pointing there then the food is there however like the reality you know as people point out in the study that reality is more complicated than that and obviously you know you can't truly assess that they are just uh useless at i know not useless but kind of a not as good at uh causal cognition maybe they are you know just thinking in a kind of you know different way mm-hmm. and so uh especially like you know when they were saying when a human was hiding they were losing interest in solving the riddle altogether and were more interested in, you know, trying to find the human. So they're like, what happened to human? Yeah, so uh, I think there are two kind of lines that you're, you're, you're talking about there. One is what we would probably think is, is kind of an intuitive result, which is that wolves are better at independent problem solving than dogs or at least then the dogs that were, were assessed in this study. And we, I went into the supplementary material to look for the breeds and all that sort of thing. So we can, we, can, we can talk about that and the possible variation among dog breeds in, in these sorts of tasks and things yeah, but, like that. However, you know, they cite other studies and they say yes. that there are no... And I, uh, yeah. I, I read no those... Age or no, you know, breed effect in cognition in bad dogs. Yeah, so I went and I got that study as well. Uh, and we can talk. We can talk about that too. But specifically, I mean, initially there are two things. Like I think you just kind of um, you crossed from one result to the other in a way that might not um, have been really clear for listeners. So I think it's it seems intuitive that wolves are going to be better at independent problem solving than dogs because they don't have their evolutionary history hasn't been 
shaped by the option of relying on humans or you know by solving problems in tandem with humans they have to do it all on their own and as the experimenters point out their feeding ecology is completely different from dogs even when dogs are wild you know when dogs are rewilded or they're feral they tend to be scavengers they often hang around um, human encampments where there's plentiful rubbish and things like that whereas wolves are out there you know doing serious hunting uh but so that seems kind of intuitive the other thing as you pointed out that seems more surprising is that the dogs were simply not better at following the kinds of cues that the experimenters used point and gaze there were no verbal cues used here and i think that that's a really interesting thing because as you mentioned Mm -hmm. Uh, I sent you that that paper on the border collie um, who knows over one he he can identify over what is it one thousand and twenty two objects by name uh, and that's that's pretty that's pretty impressive um, and there are no you know comparable experiments with with wolves trying to train them to that I'm aware of obviously trying to to train them to to memorize or understand that many words so speaking of the breed variants it's what they said in the in the paper the original paper that you sent me is that the Mm -hmm. there is no age or there's no strong age or sex variation and there's only a weak variation among breeds so i went i went and i got that paper that they referenced for the breed variation and i mean it's not a very uh powerful study in, in my opinion like i don't think any of these studies are particularly powerful and we can we can also i don't think any any studies in particular are powerful except <laughs> for you know cancer in mice so yeah um <laughs> and in in that study though the other one they they did show um they did show breed variation on what did they show sorry i made a note i've forgotten um okay so they were comparing new guinea singing dogs which are essentially similar to Australian dingoes. They are dogs descended from domestic dogs. They have a long co-evolutionary history with humans, but they are wild. And New Guinea singing dogs have supposedly been wild in some areas for five, at least 5,000 years. So they've had not much contact with humans over the last 5,000 years. So they took those dogs and then they compared them with pet dogs. So similar to this other study, except instead of wolves, they had New Guinea singing dogs. And they did find some some differences. They just didn't find differences in all conditions. Uh, So they actually found in this case that the pet dogs were significantly better than the New Guinea singing dogs in following the pointing or gaze cues. So unlike the the original study that we've talked about, where there was no difference between wolves and dogs and that, there was a significant difference between these two treatment groups of dogs. But uh, the New Guinea singing dogs were better at a kind of a, maybe a causal kind of association, where uh, they were better at recognising, kind of following a clue when the experimenter showed them a block, a block of wood, and then put that down next to the um, the um, the treat, basically the bait, the baited condition. The New Guinea singing dogs were better at associating the block with the bait than the domestic dogs were. 
So they actually didn't, in that, look at differences between or among domestic breeds. Once again, same, same kind of issue. They looked at two very different treatment groups, New Guinea singing dogs versus what they took to be a standardized group of dogs, which um, I can't remember the exact breakdown. There were a lot of retrievers, a lot of um, golden retrievers and labs. I think there were th there was like six and three of those maybe. And then there was three Dalmatians. And then there were a few other things. There was one Border Collie. Um, but there was kind of a hodgepodge of different dogs, but over half of them altogether were retrievers. So I think that that study is also very much underpowered to actually investigate uh, variation in problem-solving ability among domestic breeds of dogs. And just from, you know, being around dogs all my life, you know, I grew up with retrievers, Gordon Setters actually, so Setters, um, and I've obviously, I've had a herding dog for the last um, several years, but I've always been really interested in dogs, spent a lot of time around them. I think dog people would find it very um, difficult to believe, doesn't mean it's not true, a lot of things are counterintuitive, that there wouldn't mm -hmm. be very, like, there wouldn't be significant variation amongst breeds in terms of problem-solving abilities in different tasks. We mentioned the border... Yeah, border, I, I would... Yeah. I'm not sure if that would be a correct way of liking it to, you know, human races, mm. but in a way, kind of, you know, it, it's a close concept to that. Because, you, you know, the argument would go that, you know, different breeds they have, you know, they have been selected for different mm. uh, tasks and they have been, you know, fulfilling different tasks. While, you know, human lineages, human nations, the same, right? You have Eskimo, you know, kind of selected for hunting in the mm. ice, you know, clad in furs. And then you have, you know, Papua New Guinea Aboriginals who mm. are of completed flavor. So... And yet, you know, if we compare them, if we set the trials properly, we see that there are no differences in cognition that can be, you know, attributed to the, you know, nationality or race. For sure. Races. But there are differences so. in other attributes. You know? Yeah, there will be. You know, there would be a person, you know, some Amazonian tribes, they can, you know, uh, sense, not sense, but they can uh, know the, you know, like compass direction. So, you know, north, south, mm. all, all of that even if you put them in the bunker. Mm. So they have some way of, you know, orienting themselves that we just don't develop. Yeah. But I mean, there's, there's like... been shown to be a, a, a significant difference between Indigenous Australian kids and, uh, you know, Anglo-Australian kids in pattern recognition tasks and things like that yeah. as well. So, but I also think that there, I do think that, that there is an analogy here. There's a valid analogy that you're making, but I also think there's a little bit of a disanalogy um, because the some of these dog breeds have been specifically evolved for different kinds of problem solving or for different kinds of cognition, and that's directly what we've selected them for. Like the herding breed, like a border collie that can learn a thousand words they have been bred to have a very, very close relationship with a human master, to take directions from a master. And whenever they're herding, they're always doing that in very close contact um, with the, you know, the human herder who is directing them, telling them what to do, and they're constantly checking in. Whereas if you, if you look at a hound, say, uh, that 
is also used by humans is a working dog used in hunting those hounds they run off way 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 in front of the humans and they are more doing a kind of independent problem solving or you can think of ratting dogs that, that you know that go under the ground and i mean obviously there's a yeah. great diversity of things that dogs do yeah sorry go on well, that'll be it'll be an interesting, you know, uh, interesting to check whether you know you can train a hound to be a shepherd and you can have mm. a shepherd to be a hound, because you know in the same line of argument you can say that I don't know, uh, like peasants, you know, for thousands of years they were essentially selected to be peasants, and mm. so they were selected to follow the rules of the whoever is in charge and to you know just do the you know crop like work in the field. And nothing else. So, but we know that you know, give them a like not even a generation, but if you raise them under different conditions, you'll get a totally different human. Sure. Even though you know, like phenotypically, you know, this human has you know, like can be bulky, right? Because for generations it was selected for this hard work. Mm. I guess for much longer, and we can get to the difference between natural and artificial selection and and that stuff as well. But for much longer all humans were in relatively similar conditions. I mean, they might have been, after the, you know, out-of-Africa radiation, they might have been in different climatic conditions, they would be hunting different kinds of game and that sort of stuff, but they were all essentially hunter-gatherers. Like the whole peasant versus aristocrat division in human yeah. evolution is relatively recent. Obviously, the, all yeah. the domestication and, and the diversification of breeds is pretty recent, but is that are potentially there greater differences there because that was directed intelligent design artificial selection in which humans have very intensively looked to breed in certain characteristics and i just like this kind of gets to a nature nurture question as well it's like if you take a, a hound puppy and a border collie puppy do mm -hmm. they have i mean once they're at the age of you know six months where they have you know competency to actually you know be doing the same kinds of stuff that adults do albeit perhaps not quite as well do they have the same propensity for different tasks as each other you know i certainly do not believe that they do and i've seen my dog at the age of about one year never having ever seen she's not you know she's not a working dog she is a working breed but she's never worked she never was trained to herd for example but she got into a paddock with goats at the age of about one maybe a little bit over one and she immediately started herding them like she went straight for them she was nipping at their heels and australian shepherds are contact herders so they get right in there and she had um eight goats which had all been spread out in a tight circle within you know within a minute and um this other goat i probably told you this story but this other goat this was at um some mutual friends of ours house remember deb and doug um this other goat they had merlin who was this really really large billy goat um almost you know probably five feet tall with big horns he actually saw Keneally, my dog herding the the other goats which were much smaller and he wanted to get in on there he seemed to have some desire to protect the goats he actually climbed over the fence into the paddock and he went headlong for Keneally and tried to butt her mm. and she dodged out of his way 
got behind him, nipped his heels, and within 10 seconds of him entering the fray, he was in the same tight-knit little herd um, with all the other goats. <laughs> I mean, this is... I mean, this is just, you know, an observation. It's, it's very anecdotal. Um, but, you know, you certainly hear similar things from people who do yeah. use herding breeds in work routinely, that they just take to it. They have an aptitude for it. And I don't think beagles or chihuahuas um, or Great Danes have that same proclivity for just herding. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good uh, line of thought. But, yeah... I mean, and also they had like more generations, you know, they would have, you know, how many generations per human generation, yeah, right? Sure, sure. So their selection would be faster Seven than ours. Seven times and as many. They, they were, yeah, and like intelligently selected, purposefully sure. selected, yeah. while humans were largely selected just, you know, purposelessly. Yeah. But at the same token, you know, well, if you take, say, yeah, I mean, as you were saying, if you compare the kids, like, you know, Aboriginal Australian kid mm. and a white Australian kid, then, you know, Aboriginal Australian will have better pattern recognition. Whether that will lead, you know, Aboriginal Australian kid to be a better hunter, say, mm. you know. Mm. Like, whether it will be natural, just as a natural aptitude for him then to go and catch lizards and though for him, you know, go and catch something. Or to be know? able to well, find his way or her way in a in a landscape which would seem relatively featureless to us. Yeah, yeah, but more, more, my point is more about the notion because, you sure. know, you were saying that they nearly had the notion to herd. Yeah, sure. And maybe that notion to herd was, uh, you know, inspired in her by the pattern recognition of, like, this mm. is the pattern of dispersed things. And, you know, I recognize them as dispersed things and I have a notion to, you know, make them, you know, like consolidate them basically <laughs> so whether a human that you know sees the patterns and then you know he sees or she sees a lizard whether then will be drawn to expect you know to inspect that lizard to you know do something investigate and when you have a kid who doesn't see a lizard he's like well i don't see anything yeah oh absolutely I, yeah it's 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 really fascinating because then we get into the question of just you know, are there real differences in intelligence or actual cognitive capacity, or are there just differences in inclination? You know, are... but you like where they are stemming from. You know, yeah. like with the if we're going back to dogs and wolves, sure. we kind of it's kind of assumed now that uh, I mean, however true it is is unknown, but that dogs were domesticated through you know, just them scavenging mm. on the remains of mm. human hunts. So, and the uh, fact that you mentioned that, you know, dogs that go feral, mm. they scavenge, kind of, you know, lies in the same uh, vein that if we bred, the, bred dogs from wolves that were, you know, quote-unquote lazy and just mm. more prone to be just you know, picking whatever's on the ground... So maybe they were not good at hunting themselves. Sure. And maybe that's why we, you know, took them because they were not going anywhere. They were reliant on us providing them with, you know, scraps of meat. And so maybe, you know, the stoke that we started at wasn't good at hunting, wasn't good at solving, you know, cues. And then because then we put them under the environment from the very beginning that is less complicated than nature i mean we're still in nature obviously but it's mm. not as complicated and threatening as a forest to a wolf yeah it, it 
it's very simple in terms of here is the food, right? Here is the human. Mm. You do this, right? It's like really simplistic in comparison to a pack of wolves who hunt different preys in different seasons, you know, go into all kinds of different tasks and have to solve very different problems. Mm. Then you, you know, if you compare it to a dog that's living in the, you know, basically binary, you know, environment, you get the food, you know, you look at the human, you get the food, like kind of a, (laughs) it's already, uh, you know, presupposes for a dog to have a not sim- no, simplified version of uh, in, in cognition, but kind of a it doesn't incentivize mm. uh, understanding of complexity. Sure, unless of course the dog is being trained to recognize over a thousand different toys. Uh. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> fair, but again, you know, I mean, like I don't know. Those toys are just, like, they're the same type of toys. Whether it will be able to recognize, you know, a bike from a toy, from a door, from a mountain. The question is, which is more difficult? You know, differentiating amongst a pool or a set of similar things or differentiating between sets of things? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, that that itself is an interesting question. You know, I like this. I, I mean, I was hoping we were going to get here. This uh, there's obviously the, the hypothesis which you've just put forward that kind of dogs essentially domesticated themselves, uh, and you know some people have claimed that dogs should therefore be thought of as parasitic, uh, but I I obviously strongly believe that um, it's more of a mutualism. You know, humans have got a lot out of their relationship. <laughs> What parasitic like? <laughs> there, there was a uh, there is a there is a, an evolutionary um, writer I can't remember who who's written about dogs as as parasites on humans yeah because they domesticated like, themselves and they exploit us go there like cats are close, closer yeah. much closer to parasitic. I don't know I, I think cats also very much have served us a purpose obviously oh, ro- yeah, rodent control have. you know it's mutualism yeah, but just right right now like if you take dogs right now they still fulfill a lot of functions but if you take cats right now most of the time they're just there to be there but a lot of people love their cats and that companionship. yeah but this you can you can say that this is you know the way to be a parasite you you know incite love into you and then that's the only thing you do and then you're taken care of sure and i think that that would be interesting but i think it would be technically uh, a stretch of the definition of parasite because that that you know that's the way of infecting like infecting you you're no, infected I... with this parasite by loving it yes but if having if love is beneficial for you if that companionship is beneficial for you then the organism that has manipulated you into loving it has already transcended the category of parasitism and entered into mutualism because now you are that... getting a positive benefit yeah. from it and i think you know that's this true. But at the same time, you know, all the actual parasites, like, you know, helmets that cats can give to its owner and, uh, and you know, all the, you know, tri- like trypanosome and all that stuff, right? Well, toxoplasma most famously, yeah. Toxoplasma, yeah, not trypanosome, yeah, toxoplasma. And why did that misfire my brain? <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so toxoplasma, uh, that, you know, can you can say, hey, you know. Well, that's a parasite. Not- Maybe. Yeah, that's really but, beneficial for you. You get this, you know, 
Well, it makes you more, it makes you more reckless, you know, and it might be implicated in causing car accidents and things. Mm. Um, I think you know, if if we narrow in uh, or if we drill down enough on on some of these categories within the various forms of symbiosis, from parasitism to mutualism then we may find that the boundaries between those categories are fluid, like the boundaries between pretty much every category that we impose on, on nature. But I think, um, I think this guy who, who wrote this particular article that I read a few years ago about dogs as parasites was drawing a long bow in suggesting that dogs were parasites because they had domesticated themselves. And I think it really just reflected the fact that he doesn't really like dogs, um, to be honest. Me, yes. But I think I think it's a it's a potentially yeah. potentially an interesting point that the dogs that domesticated themselves, and this is notwithstanding other hypotheses, by the way, of dog domestication and the fact that we do know that well wolves have been kidnapped directly from dens and things by humans as well, and what role that sort of thing has played in domestication, we don't really know. But um, this idea that these wolves might not only might have been um, maybe incompetent hunters, they may also have been outcasts from packs. You know, they might have been outside the the dominance hierarchy. They might have been forcibly ejected from packs and thus gone looking for something else. But at the same time, we might say that they were very, very good at recognizing novel opportunities in the you know the evolutionary landscape, so to speak. They saw an opportunity for an easy meal and they took it. So I think I think we should be careful about thinking that one strategy which is remaining a wolf um, is superior, you know, a normal wolf and hunting is superior to another strategy. They're just kind of two different strategies that diverged at some point there. And probably the dog strategy at the end of the day has been far more successful than yeah, the wolf the strategy. Yeah, the dogs and wolves. Yeah. But at the same you know, like in the um context of cognition yeah. it's not that you know wolf strategy is superior it's just wolf strategy requires yes. you know more being more apt in cognition more apt in solving complex problems well independently i think that's the key thing here well the, that... but the diversity of problems is also higher mm. you know if you're a herding you know dog you're a herding dog if you're a hunting dog you're a hunting dog yeah but you know that's not being but tested also, right? kind of the same as hunting in a way well, but yeah, but you have like one type of thing, right? You don't have, uh, you know, different types of hunting in addition to having just seeking for different kinds of meals. Like you know, hunting for ma- mice and then hunting for elk is kind of different. But then you also need to know, you know, your uh, I don't know roots that you can eat when you can't have mice. Yeah, I think I think you might be overemphasizing that element as opposed to the more sort of dependence element and and I and also the the reorientation of the reward structure or the motivational um, element here, where dogs have been bred not to receive rewards independent of humans, but to receive their war- rewards from humans so for a wolf they go out and they get their own reward you know they work hard and they they you know bring down an elk or whatever well depending on what kind of wolf they are and where they are um, and then they get their reward there is of course a dominance hierarchy in place where they might have to in some sense 
receive their reward from members of the pack that are higher up that dominance hierarchy in the sense that they wait their turn to eat. But for dogs, in a lot of cases, they have a very peculiar sort of reward structure. So like a herding dog is very excited by sheep or whatever, goats and cattle, depending on what kind of herding dog it is. But it is very, very strongly conditioned not to seek its reward by bringing down one of those sheep. You know, herding dogs that kill sheep get shot, traditionally. Um, and similarly, you know, retrieving dogs and kind of hunting dogs and, and that sort of stuff. Even, even hounds involved in fox hunts, they are trained to find foxes, to flush them out or to corner them, but not to kill them. Um, if you're a, a retrieving dog, like a, a, a duck-tolling retriever or any number of retrievers, you know, your owner, your master, shoots down a bird and your job is to go and get that bird. But if you eat the bird, then, you know, you have failed and you will be severely disciplined and, and you know, maybe, you know, back in the day when, you know, men were real men and dogs were real dogs, you would, you know, you, you might have been killed. Um Whereas when you bring that thing back intact and don't eat it, when you successfully herd without damaging the livestock, etc., that's when you get a reward and you get the reward directly from your human master. So there's a kind of, there is a subservience in, in wolves, definitely. There's a dominance hierarchy, but I think that's taken to the next level with the human dog relationship that dogs kind of aren't allowed generally speaking to get anything on their own terms like a well-trained dog is a dog that doesn't do anything for itself you know we, we yeah. tend, we tend you know, maybe, maybe that is actually, is actually an interesting point because you would think that you know when you have a uh, complex cognition you know developed cognition you will have independent thinking yeah. so you will have know like a uh, organism creating goals for you know itself and setting goals for itself independent of you know like in, in like not so much of independent of environment but kind of you know on its make setting you know goals in its own terms mm. while we purposefully uh, curb this ability for in, in dogs so we are preventing them from being independent thinkers and it's like you know uh like this is the thing that you know dog owners like to say that oh you know it's my baby or something and the point is no it isn't because you will never allow it to be independent mm -hmm. you will never like never ever you will you know let your dog be out in the world on its own it's always there you're always its master yeah. and yeah. this you know hierarchy with the dog is never broken and so like you would think that even if they aren't biologically supposed to be you know not as smart as wolves right they will be so through you not allowing them to be that well i think just to have to push back again i mean i think all that's all true and i think what you hint at there that dogs there's no possibility in the future of a dog of ever reaching the top of the dominance hierarchy. There is a dominance hierarchy for wolves, but there is a possibility for any given wolf that it becomes the alpha male or the alpha female. That possibility doesn't exist for dogs. It does on the level of you know some, some domestic dogs, particularly things like hounds and things like huskies and that kind of stuff, which in some sense certainly seem to be closer to wolves. Um, 
they may have a dominance hierarchy within the pack, but a human will always be the top dog. And I think that's really mm -hmm. important. But I also, I just want to push back again, or maybe more explicitly than I have been, against this idea that what we're talking about here is some kind of difference in intelligence, as though intelligence is this one thing. What we're di talking about is difference in competency in different kinds of problem solving. So the big sore thumb, a big sore thumb that's not being tested in any of these studies, is the ability of wolves to be trained to do the kinds of things that dogs are trained to do, including to recognize large numbers of verbal cues. You know, so this Border Collie, it knows a thousand different um, toys, right, whatever. That's, you know, that's a freak. But your average dog that's even halfway well-trained probably knows tens of verbal cues. And those aren't just the, you know, the tricks it can do, not just sit, lay down, roll over, shake, etc. Those will be, you know, diverse and, and related to a number of ways that it interacts with humans. And there's a way in which dogs, and I'd be, I'm not sure if it's the case with wolves, and I don't see that being tested in these studies. Um, and I do have friends from the zoo industry who've worked with wolves, and we can talk about that maybe as well. But um, dogs are very interested, or at least some dogs are, my dog is, herding breeds are, very interested in words. They listen when you talk to them, and they don't understand most of what you say, or there's no reason to believe that they do, but they make an effort to understand. Like Keneally, if we talk to her, we use a certain tone of voice, but also certain words, many of them are not words that we have taught her, and some of them are words that she completely misunderstands. Um, for example, if we say basket, Keneally gets a little bit kind of worked up and thinks that we are going to wash her. Now, that kind of makes sense because washing basket, we, you know, that's the kind of basket that we're usually talking about. It's the only basket we really use in the house. And she's not really keen on being washed. She knows the word wash. She knows the word bath. She knows the word shower. Because I can, I can say, go to the bath, and Keneally will run straight into the bathroom. We never taught her the word basket. Um, she's actually coming upstairs right now. Hey, Baba. <laughs> Hello. Sorry, because I'm using these trigger words for her. Sorry. Um, <laughs> that's funny. They have an interest in words, is what I'm saying. They can be taught verbal commands, but they also pick up on words that you never intended for them to, to associate with anything. Keneally will sit there, and especially if you're looking at her, but as we, she just came up from downstairs where I couldn't see her or anything, so she's listening to me from down there and wondering what I'm talking about. Uh, but if you're looking at her and talking to her and using certain key words or words that sound like them, she's cocking her head back and forth. She's trying to look very closely at your face. She's trying to read your body language. And again, anecdotally, um, I would say that she's very sensitive. I think a lot of dog owners feel this, and I don't think it's entirely, you know, bullshit. Um, she is sensitive to our moods you know when we are irritated or unhappy or fearful it affects her she looks to us to give her an example of how to behave um and that's kind of getting yeah. off the point the point yeah. was that intelligence in dogs is uh, kind of a quite 
complex, I guess. Yeah. But um, I mean, that's what we were selecting them for at the yeah. same time. Absolutely. But I guess it seems like that's the only thing that we were selecting them for is, you know, to be socially adapt. And those dogs who are not socially adapt and are not good with following cues were basically put down, as you were saying. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, we weren't but, just selecting them for that, obviously. We were selecting them for specific But tasks, it would be hard but, yeah. you know, to compare. Yeah. But I mean, not intentionally. Uh, but it would be hard to compare them, you know, that trait of theirs to mm. wolves. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, you no know, intelligence is not a single trait. Mm. A, intelligence is, you know, a plethora of, you know, things. I, like whether it's, you know, even can be, you know, uh, finitely uh, described is the question. Mm -hmm. But definitely, you can say, you know, social intelligence in dogs is quite prominent. You know, in comparison to say, I don't know cats for the sake of argument yeah. that you know, a dog would be more socially adapt than a cat than a domestic <laughs> cat but maybe not than a lion yes but you still probably can make an argument mm. that you know domestication curbs certain kinds of intelligence it curbs you know independent thinking mm. you know for reasons it curbs your ability to you know like solve tasks if they are not uh, you know if you're not made to solve them yeah I mean, I, w I would just like to see, I'd like to see more work done. I would like to see dog breeds that are associated with independent problem solving, like dogs that rescue people after avalanches and things like that, that have to look for, you know, very subtle clues of, you know, where people might be, but aren't doing this under <laughs> direction and that kind of stuff. I'd like to see them compared to wolves on, say, yeah, that's a good one. that kind of thing. And then I'd also like to see to the extent that it's even possible, you know, wolves compare... So there was some social intelligence of wolves being tested here, right? And what we were surprised by is that they performed as well as the dogs in pointing and gazing. You know, wolves are obviously very socially intelligent, and that's what made them susceptible to domestication in the first place, or, you know, made them such great companion animals, makes dodge, you know, etc. Um, but... What about this verbal thing? You know, I kind of got off the point there and I got distracted when Keneally actually came upstairs. But to what extent are dogs, uh, wolves, sorry, interested in human language? And to what extent are they trainable to verbal cues? And how does that differ between, not only between, you know, wolves and dogs, but also, again, among dog breeds? You know, we, we have a very, very strong intuition that different dog breeds are differentially trainable uh, and i don't i don't see that kind of thing being investigated in these studies maybe we just need to dig further into the literature but but maybe as usual you know as, as usual it seems to be the case that if you have a specific question and you're trying to find out whether somebody has actually studied it you would find you know a study that looks at it somewhat you know half-heartedly so maybe nobody has actually looked at it, you know, in precise ways. Um, but what's in, like, you know, what they point out is that wolves were not as interested in looking at humans. Sure. They were not as interested in, you know, directing their attention when a human was talking or mm. a human was pointing at mm. something. When they were looking at the human, they, you know, could get, uh, you know, the cues. Yeah. But they were just, like, staring everywhere because for them the human was not a you know, point of attention. For a dog, it is. If, yeah. you know, you're walking by a dog, a dog will be, like, looking at you, you know, it will be barking at you, it will be, like, attending to you. Absolutely. Not non-stop. There wouldn't be, you know, it would be rarely a dog that you can just pass by and it won't mind you at all. 
So, yeah, I don't know. We kind of, it seems to me that we kind of, you know, develop them into not a parasite, but then this kind of, you know, very dependent, mm. you know, only like basically addicts to humans. Yeah. And if it's not something, you know, human related yeah, in very you know, specific way, they just don't give a shit. And maybe they even like, I'm not sure if they are not capable of solving those riddles mm. or whether the guy, you know, just those um, traits of them are underdeveloped and, you know, they are permanently underdeveloped. Yeah, but maybe there's a trade-off as well. So, again, instead of using language like underdeveloped or less intelligent or whatever, uh, compromised... Well, a trait can be underdeveloped. Oh, um, yeah, for sure, for sure. I'm not saying that they're not underdeveloped. I'm saying that another way of putting it would be to say that they have developed new competencies and that there is some kind of trade-off. Like, for example, the wolf brain and the dog brain anatomically are very, very similar. So there's only a certain amount of information processing capacity, perhaps, that their you know, cortexes can sustain, can support. And so maybe because dogs have changed their focus onto different things. And I think it's not it's not just obsession with humans. I think the words thing is really important because verbal commands are very much a human thing. You know, mm-hmm. wolves will watch the body language of other wolves. They will take the cue, their cues from the body language of dominant wolves. Um you know, gaze, orientation, all that kind of stuff, you know. Wolves will communicate absolutely silently with each other when they're hunting so as not to alert their prey. And where another wolf is looking is going to be very, very important cue for, uh, you know, another wolf. Uh, so uh-huh. those kind of body language things and obviously scent-related things and, 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 and the rest you can understand would be very important to wolves. Verbal commands, on the other hand, yeah, there's a bit of yapping that wolves do, and obviously they howl together, so they have some degree of sensitivity to social noise-making. But, you know, human language obviously, you know, takes that to a completely different level. So if dogs are having to devote a substantial portion of their cognitive capacities to learning words and to paying attention to certain kinds of sounds and, and, you know, in general, certain kinds of human behaviors that wolves are just completely oblivious to, then it makes sense that there'd be a trade-off. So, yeah, some other, you know, cognitive ability, independent problem solving may suffer as a result. But what we have is actually we've increased one competency at the cost of another. We haven't decreased competency across the board. We've given them new powers of intelligence. Yeah, okay. But, uh, I mean, I guess uh, it will be interesting to see, you know, how the actual processing happens in the... their brains, you know, to do an MRI studies of, you know, when they're trying to solve certain tasks, where they know that's the the same uh, structures in their brain are uh, active, and well, when they are, you know, cueing, uh, like looking for, you know, human cues, and when they are listening to humans, whether the same, whether the same or different parts of their brain are engaged, it'll be very interesting. To Definitely, see. there has there been. Be stuff like that, well, there has right? been there has been quite a bit of um, brain imaging done with 
certain dogs. But as you know, with MRI, a big issue is that the subject has to be absolutely still. So I gather these, yeah. these dogs have to go through a lot of training to just sit still. Yeah. And then, of course, they can't be... Some, some EEG, right? Yeah. High resolution. Yeah. Yeah, there probably is more... Um, I've actually I bought Genevieve, my wife, a couple of um, of books on dog neuroscience. Uh, <laughs> they're just sort of popular science books, but they have um, they do have the reports of some of these studies. But I myself have not actually read them, so I can't really comment in any detail, unfortunately. Um, All right. Oh, okay. so well, that's good to know that those books exist. <laughs> yeah, they exist. Um, yeah, but it, well, like you know, dogs aside, you mm. see that domestication, at least you know, intuition tells us that mm. you know, domestication dumbs things down, and <laughs> there is you know, again, in the mm. uh, you know, kind of a common sense rationality, mm. it makes sense because the you don't want you know your uh, domesticated uh, animal to you know find a way out. You don't want it to be smart. You want it to be quite dumb so that it stays in this place and does one exact job. And for <laughs> most you know, animals, is that exact job is to eat and get fat. Yeah. That's pretty much Yeah, depending on yeah, depending on a lot of things. It well, might be it might be to draw carts or to be ridden or you know, domestic animals yeah. do a lot of stuff. But, but most domesticated animals are domesticated for, you know, for some kind of a food. Uh, I don't you know were, about you know, most. Only, um, only, come on, only horses, dogs, and and cats are somewhat different. All the others, we just, you know, we eat them. Yeah, okay. Well, there are, you know, camels and shit. Yes, oxen. fair. I mean, there, there are lots, you know. Uh, let's not make a list. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> not making a list. But still, you know, you don't want your, uh, like, you know, with the horses, right? It's yeah. paramount that if a horse has, like, its horse has a bad temper, which means that it's independent. You know, yep. so it tries to, you know, knock you out from its back. It tries to, you know, get sure. away. Sure. And it's a bad horse. You need to break it down. Yeah, but that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean it's a less intelligent horse. So I think there's definitely selection on a lot of these animals for subservience to humans, for sure. Yeah, um, I don't know. For, it, me, for me, I feel like, you know, there is obviously no difference <laughs> in traits as in like, you know, agreeableness in humans yeah. and intelligence. They are, you know, not correlated as traits. Mm -hmm. However, for me, as you know, it seems like kind of a, you know, important to that independent thinking is, you know, uh, like, Basically, if you're intelligent enough, you are you can think independently. If you can't think independently, you are not intelligent enough. That's kind of a, I don't know, just the way I see things, I guess. Yeah, but, but I, I think that that's you just can't too. Foods, you know, you're you're only you can only be led. You can't never lead. You can't lead. Yeah, um, but I think I think you're you're. Uh, I I agree with some of your reasoning, but I think that you are sort of flattening out the various different ways in which an organism might be intelligent. Like, I don't think a lot of herding organisms, like herd, not herding organisms, um, organisms that live in herds do a lot of independent problem solving, do a lot of independent thinking. Mostly they move with the herds and they graze, you know, a lot of ruminants. I don't think that they have particularly sophisticated problem solving capacities in the first place. Uh, so, and I think that that may be part of what makes them ripe for the kind of domestication that we've done with them. 
I think horses are a bit different from that. You know, horses do live in 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 herds, but um, I you know I think horses are a bit more intelligent than say sheep or yeah. cattle. And I, you know, and it may well be the case that those particular organisms, those particular species, are like sheep and cattle, that the domestic um, examples are less intelligent than their wild counterparts. That may be the case, but that that's they're very different from dogs, um, which I guess is partly <laughs> to your point. Um, but I just I, switching topics not switching topics but switching emphasis just for a second one of the things that they talk about in this study is they talk about um the what is it the uh, social dog causal ape hypothesis which is which is the idea that uh you know dogs because they're so socialized with humans they look to humans for cues and they're not very good at independent problem solving without the direction of humans whereas apes which they were compared to are very good at independent problem solving you know and i think there's an interesting corollary of this and of what we were talking about with dogs paying attention to verbal commands because uh, one of the characteristic things of apes in captivity is that they're not interested in human words. They're not interested in verbal language. You have to work very, very hard to get them to just pay attention to speech. And that's often held up. I mean, Daniel Dennett likes to use this as an example of differences in consciousness between humans and apes or differences in learning capacity, social learning capacity. But he's not the only one to hold them up as, as in comparison with human children. But if you if you you know human children, they are absolutely fascinated by language and they pay a great deal of attention to to the words around them and they learn language like sponges. You know they're not really taught language as we know. They just kind of pick it up, uh, and we wouldn't really know how to teach language. We know how to refine a language capacity, but we wouldn't really know how to teach it from scratch. And luckily, we don't have to. Whereas chimpanzees raised amongst humans are not really interested they don't really pay attention they have no innate proclivity for trying to learn that kind of communication and again i guess just worth pointing out chimpanzees are better at certain kinds of problem solving tasks than humans are Uh, chimpanzees are better at pattern recognition tasks than humans are Uh, you know show them a box full of colored cubes uh, you know, that Lumosity game, Memory memory Square, what's it called? Um, you know, where it f- flashes a bunch of, um, of uh, filled-in squares and empty squares on a grid, flashes them for a second, less than a second, and then you have to memorize them. Chimpanzees can dramatically outperform humans in tasks like that. But generally speaking, we tend to think of humans as having more cognitive competency a greater range of cognitive competency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, if we, you know, like within that definition, you know, within uh, that way of thinking that, you know, humans have more uh, cognitive capacity than chimpanzees, that I guess wolves will have more cognitive capacity than dogs if we are within that way of thinking. But if we're going, you know, what you were, you know, kind of wanting us to go as an us, I guess, humanity, is understanding, you know, that there are different ways of... Uh, thinking, you know, there are different ways of solving problems and there are different, you know, capacities and different traits under the umbrella of intelligence, then, you know, 
you can't say that humans are smarter than chimpanzees like at all because then you know i gotta stop you there i'm not advocating relativism as far as intelligence goes humans are clearly more intelligent than chimps and actually i was kind of yeah okay but i mean why then then you know give a basis for that because you can't you know, if you are put in the environment of a chimpanzee, you can't really outperform chimpanzee there. Completely. Again, it will depend on how we define intelligence. And it is always a... Uh, um, we should always caution ourselves before we try to say that intelligence is any one, you know, obvious thing or one set of competencies that's intelligence whereas others aren't and you know we can go to extreme examples like bees being extremely good at solving mazes yeah. and things like that i mean if you... more than that have you seen that you remember that bumblebee study when the bumblebees were you know like they could learn from other bumblebees how to drag a piece of plastic from under the glass using the rope mm -hmm. and to get the next from it like that's insane yeah, yeah and yeah. i would think you know, a cow wouldn't be able to get that yeah probably and i mean look at the classic example of um of communication in honeybees you know the waggle dance and the amount yeah. of information that is encoded in that and decoded from that by other bees uh like the directional information that they're able to to take from that is is very impressive yeah. you know when we're comparing dogs and wolves um, my point has been that if we were, you know, to tally up their different competencies, we might simply find that one doesn't have more competencies than the other, but that they are domain specific. Um, whereas if we were to take humans and chimpanzees, we would certainly find that hum the chimps outperform humans in certain domain specific problem solving tasks that humans don't really have to deal with. But I think we could be fairly uh, confident, even without doing a real um, quantitative analysis here, that humans have a wider range of cognitive tasks that they engage with than chimps. I don't think the same thing can be said for wolves and dogs. So you were you were arguing that the wolf environment is much more complex yeah. than yeah, the Yeah, I was actually saying that that would be the case. Yeah, I was actually I'd... saying... My point would be that it is. Yeah. My point is that I would, like, again, you know, it's not obviously, I can't say for certain. It's more like, you know, my intuition says me that, that if you're a human in the forest, the amount of tasks is like an order of magnitude higher, larger rather, than uh, if you're a dog. Yeah, I don't think that that is necessarily going to hold true because even though dogs are insulated from a lot of the complexity of the world, firstly, we don't know how much of that complexity wolves pay attention to and actually perceive. And secondly, dogs move in a complex social environment, as we've already talked about, the human social environment, including the, um, their proclivity, their interest in words that wolves don't have. So you have to factor in a shifting environment, but it's not necessarily, it may be in some cases, there are plenty of dogs that just live in the backyard and don't, you know, never really get trained to do anything and just bark at people as they walk past. And, and then there are other dogs which learn, you know, th over a thousand words. And so that is 
pretty, uh, you know, that kind of dog lives in a very complex environment and is actually mapping the um, the components of that environment um, with words in a way that I think we generally think of as well, we generally think of it as as a largely human competency, but we certainly think of it as as a as a fairly complex skill and a marker of high intelligence to be able yeah, to but, yeah but this you know labeling things you know you to to what extent a wolf is mapping his surroundings with some kind of labels be it smells or be you know some other kinds of sounds or you know something more complex and like you know just a combination of those yeah like, we don't know obviously so all, yeah. all i'm saying is that i think in the case of wolves and dogs these studies don't provide us with evidence that would should lead us to the conclusion that one is you know overall smarter or has yeah. greater cognitive capacities than the others i th obviously think that yeah. chimpanzees and humans are a different uh, kettle of fish yeah from you know studies that limited it would be hard to conclude anything like that mm. however i would think you know putting emphasis on other creatures to be able to learn language is kind of you know also not exactly right as in like you're saying this is you know a major you know feature of this because it's a language is a major feature of, uh, for yeah. us you know language basically made us what we are and so then every time another animal uh is capable of understanding us we're like whoa you know this <laughs> is so smart this yeah. is just you know oh look at the parrots they're just so smart they can you know talk back like it's, I mean, not exactly that because you know the is like, look, yeah. I, I mean, being able to understand you know another species is significant, mm. but at the same time, you don't know how because this is you know for you this is the only insight into the complexity sure. of the perception and thinking of that species, and you don't know whether you know how within that species how its perception how whether it's you know complex or not complex or anything like you would think you know that social cues of you know those wolves or you know whatever dolphins a bad example because they are you know they have speech in a way uh that the complexity of their interactions can be you know freaking dramatic it's just we don't have insight into that definitely no i think this that's a really important point and that's really why I've always been resistant to the idea that within dogs, not even considering wolves, that herding breeds like Border Collies and Australian Shepherds are more intelligent than hounds or than huskies or things like that. Mm -hmm. What they are is they're more trainable. They can learn more words. It's easier to teach them words. But that's just because they have been bred to you know, pay attention to, to verbal cues and things like that. In terms of independent problem-solving tasks, I would expect those other breeds to outscore the herding breeds. So I don't think, you know, when, whenever you look at a list of most intelligent dog breeds, it's always Border Collies up the top and Australian Shepherds and Poodles are often up there and there's a few others. Um, but I, I think, to your point, the, the metric that they use in those sorts of very, very soft... Um, you know, quasi-scientific measures are specifically those, you know, how trainable are they for humans, not mm -hmm. how good are they at solving a wide range of, of different kinds of, of problems. Um, 
So, yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a really important point. And I think that is really the point I've been trying to make about intelligence in general, that we shouldn't look at one specific domain, and that includes the human domains, and say that competency in this domain is the sign of intelligence with a capital I. And, you know, whatever competency you have in some other domain, that doesn't matter. I think, you know... What distinguishes humans is really their competency in the social domain, which is their ability to transmit complex information to one another. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying that other organisms don't transmit complex information either, but there is an order of complexity or there's an apparent complexity. It's hard to escape my human viewpoint, but you know, humans doing physics versus dogs having you know or wolves having complex social cues you know humans have very complex social cues extremely complex social cues but then they also study things and they write books and they you know try to decode the structure of reality and they communicate that amongst you know themselves and they do this thing that you know Korzybski referred to as time fixing which is that they write down whatever they've learned and they commu- or they verbally but writing it down is even more powerful they communicate it to the next generation so we don't start with some you know just some basic core set of innate competencies when we come into the world and then have to learn everything about the world from scratch we can learn it from each other again other animals definitely do that other animals have some kind of of culture that they transmit uh, it's not just all, you know, animals are not, whatever Descartes had to say about it, they're not just automata. Um, they certainly learn from each other. But I think that, I think we probably have a legitimate reason to believe that humans have taken that to the next level. I guess that's all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, that there is no doubt about that. It's just when you're measuring other species using the same metric. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, but that's kind of what I'm saying, you know, because it's so important for us. It's basically, you know, our major thing you know, trade mm-hmm. that every time another organism has a capacity to do that, we're like, whoa, this is insane. Mm-hmm. But do you think because of that, your concern about that and your concern about some kind of anthropocentric measure of intelligence, you're actually more inclined to say that wolves are more intelligent because I, of their independent problem solving? But I, also, I think, you know, I would also like as a personal preference, I prefer as I said, you know, independent yeah. thinking yeah. as a trait. And I, and I think that, you know, humans kind of domesticated themselves as well. Yeah. And that, you know, the humans that we are now, we aren't, we're obviously not smarter in some sense, mm. but I don't think average would be as good as, it, you know, complex problem solving as, uh, you know, humans would be earlier on when they had to deal with, you know, the, complexity of like kind of a raw untamed nature you know on day-to-day basis but i think and it's the same issue like here. i see it for, for myself that for instance you know i'm not good at riddles mm. and it's not that you know um i can't figure out the answer it's like my motivation when i hear riddle is zero to solve it and then if i try to solve it i'm just like that doesn't make any sense because you know the way just i'm kind of you know uh so into the ways of thinking that I like mm. that other ways of thinking for me is just like this is not worth it. While if I was, you know, like living in the wild, 
as in, you know, hunting and mm. like, you know, in a, I don't know, uh, some romantic, you know, background inserted there that, you know, I'm hunting with a spear. Solving the problems is like question of life and death. For sure, but you so, wouldn't be able to solve be, riddles, no, man. More motivated, but my abilities will be more developed. Well, look, I think you'd have different abilities. And yeah, I do think there's this romantic view. And I'm not saying that what you're saying is invalid. I'm saying you would have a different set of competencies. I mean, you mentioned solving riddles. If I were to yeah. give you a book of, you know, Raymond Smullyan logic puzzles, and I were to give it to a hunter-gatherer, those are riddles. Yeah. Those are riddles, you know. That's what a yeah, riddle yeah, is. Yeah, they are um, riddles, but, you know, when, when you, you can, like, you know, I like algorithmic tasks. When you can perform an algorithm to a task, I can solve it easily. But when it's something about thinking, not like thinking out of the box, but, you know, I mean, in a way, it's like when you get, you know, what's this that, you know, shines in the night but doesn't shine during, like, whatever. Like, you know, something like this, mm -hmm. like a Sphinx riddle. That's what that I'm talking about, like Raymond, Raymond Smullyan's, sorry, I mean, I guess you're not familiar with him, but his logic puzzles are that kind of riddle, yeah. They're often, but they're you know, not verbal. There, there is no logic to them. You need to, what you need to do is you need to understand the, uh, you know, symbolic thinking of an author and mm -hmm. then back reconstruct it to the answer. For sure. And it's kind of lateral like, thinking there and a, yeah. Yeah, a metaphorical... It, 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 yeah. It will be different from person to person. Mm. So if a person A makes a riddle like that, you can't solve an algorithm. You can't have an algorithm for solving, you know, one person's riddles to another person's riddles. So because it's kind of you know, like a language, it's an individual thinking. Sure. Well, I mean, this and, this would relate to to you know the interest in in mythological thinking and things like that as well. And if you had been raised in a certain environment with a certain kind of of myth making and storytelling yeah. and then you were to be given riddles which were based on the kind of imagery that was used in in that sort of myth making you'd obviously yeah. be better yeah but look I th but, but i'm like i'm interested in myths you know i like yeah. you know that, that would be you know actually going the same way like i'm really interested in stories but only recently have i become to you know transcend the you know, story level and go on to the, you know, structure level mm -hmm. and see, you know, the, you know, structure behind the, you know, clothes of the story. So it's like, you know, basically translating, you know, a symbolic language into the meaning of its language, mm -hmm. into, you know, the essence. And for, you know, like a lot of people, that's a very easy task. It's not a really easy task for me, but at the same time, you know, things that are, I guess, easy for me, not easy for them. But the point is that now we are at the moment of our history where we are largely self-motivated. And so you are not motivated to solve things that, you know, you don't like to solve. We're very lazy in that way. We're just sure. like, I like to do this. I'll be doing this. Yeah. And I mean, don't get me wrong, this is, you know, self-motivation is a huge force, right? You know, like creative, uh, you know, writing or whatever. Like, there are a lot of, you know, things that we do that kind of are, are supposed to be, you know, the um, peak achievements of our intelligence are, you know, made by our self-motivation. But at the same token, you know, uh, we, uh, unless we are, uh, we have, like, additional motivation, like, you know, life... Um, like life motivation. For instance, you know, Akutagawa said that if it wasn't for money, I would never write. 
Mm. So, uh, like, but now we're at the point where, yeah, okay, you know, maybe if it wasn't for money, you would never ride. But we're now living in such a cozy and safe environment that that is also not a very motivating factor. And I'm... My my intuition says that basically that has a dramatic effect on the cognition, on the ability to solve uh, problems in uh, like hum- humans in general, on average. That not that we're getting dumber, but we're getting kind of lazier. Yeah, and well, we just like you know that the the Flynn, the Flynn effect. Like every measure actually suggests that we're getting smarter. That's the Flynn effect, right? And that might be you know the increase in IQ over time. Uh, and that might be because of the metrics that we use to measure IQ, um, but those are obviously designed to be the kinds of abstract problem solving that you're talking about. It also might be to do with nutrition and things like this. But I think, yeah. you know, what I think is really interesting in what you're expressing, it's not that I disagree with a lot of what you are saying. I agree with it, you know, to some extent. But I think that we have a kind of status quo anxiety as well. And, you know, it would be interesting to to consider why we have this kind of thing. One of the reasons is, I think, that, you know, our evolutionary history, um, across our evolutionary history, we were conditioned by, we were selected to survive in exactly these kinds of scenarios that you're talking about, where we had these life and death problem-solving tasks that we, we, you know, we had to solve them. Um, And now we have a kind of anxiety because we have the capacity to do that kind of thing, but a lot of it is latent. We're not being, there's no demand on us to solve those kinds of problems. And the funny thing is that this makes us kind of anxious. You know, things are so cozy now that we're distracted a lot of the time. We can afford to be distracted a lot of the time. We're not focusing on solving problems. And it turns out that makes us uncomfortable. And now there's this big, you know, cultural movement, I would say, at the moment, or it's, it's certainly, um, it's certainly a popular idea at the moment that. I mean, this idea is a popular idea at the moment that because we are not solving problems in the way that we had to in the past, we are anxious because of that. So it becomes this kind of, you know, meta thing or this little cycle where now we've identified this as a cause. And so we our romanticization, our romanticizing of that past in which we were forced to solve these problems has now reached a new level because we've understood. And I do think there is truth to it. Of course, I do that this is the one of the reasons why we are anxious. So now we're anxious about our specific lack of competency that we used to have. You know, if we are, you know, not fit, if we don't feel like we could survive in the wilds or in some kind of extreme, um, uh, you know, test of our, of our physical capacities, for a lot of us that makes us very anxious because we, we're, we're aware now that we could be plunged into a situation where our ability to, you know, solve a certain kind of problem or our ability to lift our own body weight uh, might actually be the difference between life and death. That's probably not going to happen, but we know that it could. Um, yeah. So we have this this kind of anxiety now. We want to be fit. We want to be healthy. We want to, you know, be using our brain in the ways that evolution has, um, you know, uh, the way we've evolved to use it. 
And so I, I think there's just a, a really interesting thing there. Another side of it is we have this status quo anxiety because we need novelty. You know, we're getting bored with a lot of the, you know, trappings of modern life and the kinds of information processing that are just so ubiquitous for us now. We're just being blasted with information from, you know, bloody podcasts, for example. Just constantly people talking about ideas and, you know, YouTube and, and you know, Netflix and, and all this stuff. And because we're so overloaded with that kind of stuff, we're a little bit, you know, bored and that makes us anxious as well and so again we have this look to the past and we go oh those you know back in the day we weren't overloaded with this kind of stuff we had real problems to solve and you know my life has no purpose because i don't have real problems to solve um and i need something new i need a novelty and it would be novel think, actually to have those I don't problems think to solve. novelty per se i think it's more the challenge yeah i think challenge is very important sure. and you know you can't argue that you know, in evolutionary terms, it makes perfect sense that unless you have a challenge, you're not performing to your, yeah. you know, best capacity. Because if a challenge happens, you will be out of energy. Mm. So you have to preserve energy until the challenge. But if a challenge never never comes, you're never, you know, doing anything. You're never, you know, performing great. So we see that a lot of people are creating those challenges for themselves, mm. you know, either through just going out in the wilds and, you know, allowing a crocodile to bite them. Or, you know, feeling like creating some conspiracies, like completely made up, you know, just, okay, these are, you know, there are some oppressors and we have to fight against them. And now you have a challenge. Yeah. Now you can perform better. Mm. So when, when you're fighting against, you know, white privilege, you have a challenge. This is great. And now you can be like, ooh, rallying against it. And you become better, I guess, in some sense. Worse than another, because you become blind. But you still, you know, be on the other ways, you are, you know, having your peak performance or something. For you're sure. becoming sharper. Well, and I think, you know, be, being sharp is more like, I would say, this, it's kind of, you know, like performing at the edge. Mm. So... I would I would say that dogs are almost never you know in that range, but wolves will probably be you know closer to that because they have to be sharper, while the dog is like yeah whatever. Yeah, I, again, don't know. I mean, I think you have this this prejudice for the reasons which we we're just discussing, and I don't think I was very articulate um, when I was describing it just then. But I think you might have this prejudice against dogs and domestic animals in general oh, yeah. because of yeah, your concerns yeah. about the, you know, the current human condition and your own condition and maybe your lack of motivation to do certain things. I mean, another kind of problem solving you could do, as you hinted before, is, you know, write uh, an epic novel or write a symphony or something like that. And I think we, we've returned to this theme so many times. And I do but at think the same time, these are actually good examples because, you know, a lot of those great achievements of, you know, literature and music, they come through the times of, you know, huge social changes or war. You know, a lot of great novels, a lot of great, you know, musical pieces are written by people who either have just came through war or are actually in the middle of some, you know, type of conflict or social turmoil. They have a challenge. Yes, yes and no. And we can talk about that in a second. But... Um... I think, you know, we, we've had this topic come up a lot on the podcast, yeah, which, is, which is, again, this idea that, you know, we're happy to the extent that we are solving problems, that our attention is directed outwards on some kind of, of challenge that we have to overcome, whether that is, you know, 
writing a novel or running a marathon or whatever it might be. And we've certainly linked that to our evolutionary history. We've talked a lot about that. I also, yeah, I think there is, there is a truth to the idea that some great works of art have been associated with periods of adversity. But at the same time, a lot of great artistic achievement and philosophical achievement and scientific achievement has actually gone hand in hand with periods of great prosperity when people were um, uh, lifted out of or alleviated from the, um, the challenge of a certain kind of toil which meant that they could devote more of their energy, like essentially that they had to find something to devote that energy to. And a lot of that has, has driven our artistic and, you know, scientific and ex explanatory, I mean, etc. capacity. It's true through that. But at the same time, you know, like, I mean, yes, undoubtedly so. You know, like, you know, the rises of philosophy will be, you know, during the peaceful times more than anything. However, you know, like a war would have a, give a major boost to that, you know, philosophy. But you still need to get into the peaceful time where you can actually develop it. Yeah, it's a, it's you know, that, like, that's another true. But times at the same of time, peace, you know, times of peace and times of war have alternated in human history yeah. pretty much consistently. So it couldn't really be any other way, right? I mean, it's this kind of tautological this the linking it to war and and peace. Yeah. But well, like my, you know, my point is like what I'm. Uh, uh, is that we like stories about conflicts. Yeah. Stories without, without them are boring. And, you know, if we have a, a character that doesn't come into any opposition with, you know, some opponent or, you know, it has some problem that it has to solve, it's just boring. So, like, that kind of, a, you know, shows that we are conflict driven we're like okay here is the conflict you know how is he going to solve it yeah. how am i how i would try to solve it what would be my ways of solving that conflict hey camille uh <laughs> so i guess you know we are really challenge driven you know like and i think that would be all animals are really challenge driven so I'm slightly distracted by the fact that my dog is going nuts. I think the postman is here. Um, see, she, oh, has, she has a challenge. She has to protect the home from the postman. Um, well, yeah, that's a huge. That's a huge challenge. Yeah, yeah. Um, Do you think she succeeds in that? No, no one's actually knocking on the door, so I don't think my attention is really required. Good girl. Good girl. <laughs> um, that sounded really good. This is actually like nice. You just rewarded her, and she's like, "Yeah, okay, I'm doing my job." I'm, I'm yeah, like, well, fine. I want her to be rewarded for um, for guarding the home. You know, her barking does uh, irritate me when I'm trying to concentrate or, or whatever, and sometimes it it really scares the shit out of me or shocks me when I'm you know deep, you know, I'm meditating or listening to music or, or whatever, and she suddenly starts barking next to me. But overall, I want her to be rewarded for barking when people are right outside the front door. Definitely. Um, <laughs> But like think, the, what, what's interesting here is that you can reward an animal with a word. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, a dog you can, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, just back to the conflict thing, and then I think we should probably wrap it up. No, I think that that's very true, and I, I only wanted to say that by analogy um, or sort of uh, in agreement with that, even in sort of abstract forms of art like music, 
conflict is is quite an important thing and that's why for for well that's one of the roles of functional harmony in music in you know western classical music in music of the common practice era and it's one of the reasons why some people claim that music that that you know art music western art music tradition degraded as we move through the late romantic era um, and into the 20th century and the conflict in um, in that sort of music is between dissonance and consonance right tension and resolution so you mm-hmm. build up conflict you build up more and more dissonant chord progressions um, and then you and you even go into different keys um, and then you ultimately end up resolving things back into the the tonic key and that's you know conflict and resolution and as you go through the late through the romantic period into the late romantic period the percentage of time that you're in conflict in the music the overall dissonance quotient goes up and up and up until you know you you get to schoenberg in this little potted history and schoenberg emancipates the dissonance in his terms and um and you know makes completely atonal music and for a lot of people that's very difficult to listen to precisely because there is no conflict and resolution of the harmonic kind anyway there's a great deal of conflict in um in schoenberg's music but thinking about the impact of the wars of the 20th century on music as an art form you know after world war ii in particular you know there was um I'm not sure if it was Theodore Adorno, but some art critic basically said something about, you know, how we, we can't write poetry after Auschwitz. Um, and essentially meaning that the creation of beautiful things is completely inappropriate in a world that has seen such horrible acts of, you know, humans against humans. And the music of that period is the art music of that period anyway. Um, and of course, there's an interesting uh, counterbalance to that in the rise of, of popular music, both between the wars and after World War II. But, but the art music of that period is, is the kind of complete serialist music, serialism, not surrealism. Um, so music created from series, you know, these formal constructions with no harm, harmonic tension and release, with basically no tension and release at all. And of course, you know, that forms a, a, a schism, which kind of exists even today, between the general populace and the you know elite creators and listeners who are a very mm-hmm. small number of people of you know the high art music and i just think yeah that's just an interesting example of how your point is very salient that when we remove that conflict and resolution from art forms a lot of people lose interest in them yeah and then the people who uh, you know like those conflict class uh, art forms they pride themselves on being able to keep themselves from boredom, you know, to be able to see through the, you know, hour and a half of music that mm. has, you know, ups and downs and be, you know, engaged in what's happening. They pride themselves on that. So this kind of, you know, just like they are still, you know, working within the same framework mm. because they, you know, pride themselves on being, you know, like we are so, you know, whatever, Cognitive you know, athletes, you know, they, they are. Uh, yeah, 
they are it's like cognitive athleticism you know how yeah. how long can you pay attention um yeah without and a hook this is but also, you know, what's interesting is that that music is confronting on its own. Yeah. So the conflict is not within the music. Mm. The conflict is between you and that music. For sure. For but, sure. But able to pay that attention. No, I think that's a really good point. I mean, that's the kind of art that you have to, you know, you have to go to the art. It does not come to you in any way. You know, you have to get to it in order to understand like, it. So, yeah. yeah challenge you know to go through you know schoenberg's thing completely without ever losing you know mm. attention the challenge that i'm not you know up to like uh, I, I will fail you know there would be moments that i would be just completely losing my interest you know despite my effort and that challenge in itself is enough for me to you know then go and try again but mm. like this is a challenge for sure you know? no, you're, that's i mean that's that's a, a really important point because the music is so demanding that I mean, it, it'd be very unlikely that you would get through a you know a Haydn symphony, or you know a um, a Bach concerto, um, or cantata without your concentration breaking here and there. It'd be highly unlikely. Like nobody goes for for it's very difficult to go for half an hour or or even one minute, as we find out when we try to concentrate on our breaths, um, without our concentration breaking. But th that sort of music, and just like obviously a lot of popular music in some of the same ways using harmony, but also in different ways, and there are many other ways of, of generating hooks, the music has a, a hook and a structure, a conflict resolution-based logic to it, which gives you a, a bit of a safety net. So if you do lose your concentration, which you will, you won't lose yeah. your place. Whereas in a completely through composed piece of music, whether it's, you know, some of Schoenberg's music or whether it's Pierre Boulez or whether it's, um, you know, some free jazz, there isn't that structure that unifies the whole thing. It's a very moment to moment thing, which, which when you lock into it can be incredibly beautiful because it is like the experience of, you know, open monitoring meditation. It's this incredibly complex, shimmering, you know, dynamic changing thing um but it doesn't give you you know it doesn't help you in any way to pay attention to it the, the experience of listening to something like that is very much like open monitoring meditation which takes a great deal of practice is a challenge yeah. as you say yeah anyway i think we have uh, we've put the worlds to right or the world oh, yeah. the worlds yeah. yeah all of the worlds definitely i think yeah yeah, I think we purged it from some demons. Oh, good stuff. Good stuff. Mm.